0: We're working through this series that we are just calling pray like Jesus. And as we're doing this, we're studying the Lord's Prayer, Jesus's most famous prayer for us. And I've said this every time I've taught and I want to make sure we understand this. like this prayer is not the finished product. This is the, the guidelines, this is the, the framework of how we should pray. So Jesus is giving us some ideas. He's highlighting some things for us so that we can understand how to pray. And what I want to encourage you guys to, to do is is to commit to this. Commit to this time of prayer. Commit to being people of prayer. Commit to to doing this and making this change in your life. So I'm currently reading this book called Atomic Habits. It's by a guy called James Clear. And in this book, one of the things he talks about is how small changes can make big impacts of where, where we end up. And so he uses the illustration of an airplane. So you're, you're on an airplane that's flying in America. It's flying from Los Angeles, California, so LAX. And the destination is JFK in New York City. And so he goes on to describe how when the airplane gets in the air, if the pilot changes the course three and a half degrees south, like this is 18 inches. If you've, you, We've all been on an airplane. We know that isn't very much. Like no one can feel what is happening here. But if you just change it three and a half degrees south... You end up, when you get to your end destination, you are 450 kilometers south in Washington, D.C. instead of in New York. Tiny little change. Doesn't make that much of a difference. No one's really going to sense it. No one's really going to feel it. But it's completely going to change where the destination is. It's completely going to change where we end up. And I think prayer is the exact same way. Whether we commit to prayer. The small change of prayer in our lives is going to, in large part, going to determine where we end up in our lives. Our commitment to prayer is going to determine where we, as a church, end up. And so here's what I want to make sure we understand is prayer will be one of the determining factors of where we end up. Now, let me qualify a statement like that. I want to make sure we understand this. I'm not saying like, okay, I'm not talking heaven or hell I'm not talking about where we're ending up in our salvation, but what I'm referring to is, is where, our, where our lives end up at the end of the day, largely in part is going to be determined by this small change, this commitment to prayer. Where we end up as a church is going to largely determine, we're going to be largely determined about our commitment to prayer. If you are a part of this church, or if you want to be a part of this church, hear me on this. We need to be people are praying we need to be people who are praying what jesus is teaching us how to pray we need to be people who are praying may your kingdom come soon may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven we will never as a church we will never be able to accomplish the god-given mission that he has for this church if we are not committing ourselves to praying like we can put on great events we can have these cool missional strategies and that's fine but our top missional strategy it needs to be a commitment to prayer and so what I'm talking about here is like prayer is not just a small thing, but I think for a lot of us, just a small little change, just a little change in the way that we operate, a little change in the things that we go about. And one of the cool things that I love about this series, and I, one of the things I love like as we're walking through this, is seeing what it looks like to pray like Jesus. And what we're going to see is as we're praying like Jesus, as we start living out what Jesus has for our lives, what do we, who do we begin to resemble? Jesus. The more that we start living out the way that Jesus tells us to live, the more we start looking like Jesus. And so the cool thing that is happening here is when we pray like Jesus, we begin to start resembling Jesus. And the goal for praying is is not to start praying. The goal is to become a person of prayer. So our goal is not just like, okay, what I want to do today is I just want to start praying. No, our goal is to be a prayer, to be someone who, and regardless of whether we're getting ready to get a spanking or not, whatever is happening, to be someone, our default position is to pray. That's what what I want for us. That's what we want for you as a church. That's what as we walk through the scriptures. That's what what God desires of us. I don't know if you guys have have thought about this. As I was reading this book, Atomic Habits, one of the things he talks about is, is different habits that we have that are completely second nature that we don't ever think about. So just, just a couple of these. How many people, when you walk into a dark room, think about the fact, hmm, it's dark in here. I need to turn the light switch on. That will illuminate this, this room. Does anybody think about that? Just walk in, flip the switch on. Like It's second nature. You don't really even think about it. It's a habit, something you do. How about this one? Have any of you guys ever realized the fact that like 90% of people put the same pant leg on first when they get dressed? Anybody thought about that? Like, you put your right leg in, or maybe it's your left leg, and then you do the hokey-pokey. Whatever you do is, like, 90, like, people just, that's what you do. Or, or with your shoes. 90% of people put the same shoe on first. Like, we don't realize it. We don't think about it. And now, like, after I'm reading this, I'm like, which shoe am I putting on? Like, I'm just sitting there thinking through all of this, and it's, like, blowing my mind. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this. Or maybe when you, maybe if you've driven long enough, like, how many people, when you're driving, think, Okay, a car just pulled out in front of me. Hmm. What should I do? No, like it's just our if you've driven long enough, like it's just our natural habit to hit the brake, depending on what your other habits are. Something else might happen as well when you get pulled out in front of. Like it's just it's one of those things. It just kind of happens. It's just our, our natural habits. Or if we're driving a stick shift, if you've done it long enough, we're not thinking, okay, I need to shift gears, let go of the accelerator. Push the clutch, shift gears, oh, wrong gear, do that again. Shift gears, let off the clutch, push, like, it's just, just second nature, just kind of what we're doing, and that's what we're looking at here, is to, to become a person who prayer is our second nature. We walk into a room, we walk into a situation, and the first thing that we do is, is we pray. Like, that's our natural instinct, the first thing that we do. So also in this book, he talks about a way to, to build good habits, is habit stacking. So what this is, is like you do something already. We all have habits that we do. And one of the ways that we can just start building good habits is we can just start stacking other habits on top of those. So let me just give you a few examples here of, of habits that we can start stacking. Um, the first is, is showering. Most of us shower every single day. I'm not going to make us raise our hand if we don't. But like for the most part, like a lot of us shower each day. That's a habit, something we do. And so what we can do as we, as we take that shower... We can start confessing our sin. Scripture says we should confess our sin to God so that we can be healed. So as the the water is running over us, we're taking that time to confess sin. And if your spouse realizes you're taking a longer shower, like they know there's some things that need to be dealt with. So confess sin. Here's another one. All of us at some way, somehow get to work. Whether we commute or school, whatever it is, we might walk, might ride a bike, we might bus, we might carpool, like we might drive, like. And so as we commute to work, let's stack that habit, something we're already doing, and take this time just I'm going to commit this time to praying for people. Every single day, a habit that I do is we we wash dishes. Maybe as you wash the dishes, you pray for patience. Every single day you you fix a meal. You cook dinner, you cook lunch, you cook whatever it might be. During that time is a time where you can thank God for the for giving us the food that we need. Thanking God for those moments. I don't know about you, but I I love looking at my calendar Tiffany and I have a calendar in our house, and it's on a dry erase board, so we can change it and kind of alter it. And every single morning when I get up after I make my coffee, I sit down and I look at that calendar. Okay, I was like, okay, what's going on today? What's going on in the few days that are, that are to come? And so maybe, maybe you look at your calendar. And as you do, that's a chance to stack that habit. Let's, let's use that time to, to pray for wisdom. Whether it has to do with something in the calendar or not, let's just stack that habit and, and spend some time praying is we want to be people who are praying. We want to be people who are committing ourselves to this prayer thing. So let's go ahead and and do this together. Let's pray together uh, the the passage here of what Jesus says the Lord's Prayer is. If you haven't memorized in a different version, that's perfectly okay to say it that way. I'll probably read it wrong anyway. So let's go ahead and let's pray this with one another together. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. So recently I heard a story about a about a priest who was putting on a, a convention for a, a bunch of people and a, a bunch of people were coming in to hear this guy speak and you know the guy who was hosting the event like there was a lot of like exciting things that were going on unfortunately the speaker for the evening was running was running late And so they get through all the the warm-ups, get through all the things that they're supposed to do, and they're waiting on the speaker, and, and the priest texts him, like, where are you at? He's like, sorry, dude, I'm stuck in traffic. Like, five minutes max, I'll be there. Can you just stall? a few minutes. And if you've ever been stuck in traffic, you know, five minutes turns into be like 55 minutes really quickly. And so this guy, the priest, he starts running out of things to say, he's running out of ways to stall. And so he's like, well, I have a couple of interesting stories about my time in in the priesthood. And so he talks about some of the confessions that he's heard. And so he goes on to say, he tells about the very first confession that he ever took, he was like, I was just out. I was ready to go. I was really excited. I walk into the confessional booth, and the first person who comes and sits in, he's like, he confesses to a murder. Not only does he confess to the murder, but he tells them where he buried the body and who it was. And then he leaves, and he, the priest is like, I don't know what I should do about this. And he has carried this with him for years. No one has known, and he's just told the group, like, this is what everything. And he goes on to say, everything since then has been really boring. Like, nothing is matched up to that. Finally, the speaker gets there, and he gets up on stage, and he apologizes, and he's like thanking the priest for stalling, and and he looks at the priest and tells him, priest, I don't know if you know this, but I was your very first confession. All right, bad joke, okay? It's not a true story at all, but (laughs) bad joke. But here's what Jesus says. He says, pray like this, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So one of the things we're looking at here is Confession. We're looking at confessing our sins and asking God to forgive our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. As we begin any conversation talking about sin, what I think we need to do is we need to take a moment and just recognize what sin actually is. Because I think all too often, like this is a church buzzword, like we just say, oh, sin, okay, and we don't really give much thought to it. But when we start looking at what sin is, it makes a huge difference impact. So what I want us to do first is I want us to look at the, what sin isn't. Sin isn't just a I messed up. It's not like I was trying to be pure, but I logged onto the porn site. I, I messed up. It's not, I mean, yes, sin is a mess up, but that's not all that it is. Sin isn't just a slip up. I was going to keep my, my temper in check, but you don't know what that car did to me. You don't know what they said to me. You don't know how they looked at me. I just, I just slipped up. My temper just came out. It was, I just slipped up a little bit. It's an accident. Sin is not a, an error in judgment. I was going to stave myself for marriage, but oh, he was so cute. Or oh, they were so charming. And it was just an error of judgment. Or maybe we look at sin. Oh, it's not that bad. Yeah, like, I did lie at work, I did, I did cheat at work, but I was going to lose my job. Or I wasn't going to get a promotion. It's not that bad. I mean, the people I cheated, they have more money than I have anyway. It doesn't really matter. Or at least it's not as bad as this guy. Or, or I didn't mean to get drunk. I didn't mean to get high. I was just going out for a night out. And it, it just kind of happened. Oops. And I think we start sometimes, that's how we think of sin. You know, no big deal. Oh, it was just, I just messed up. Oh, I just slipped up. It was a a lack in judgment. And is sin those things? Yes, it is. But it's something so much more. I think a lot of us tend to think of sin as just like coloring outside of the lines a little bit. When I'm upstairs teaching the kids, if I give Holly a a coloring sheet, and Holly colors outside of the lines, like, am I going to get really mad at her? It's like, how could you, three-year-old? How could you color outside? No, I'm not. Like, there's no ill intent there just just made a mistake. No big deal. And I think a lot of times that's how we like to think of sin. Ah, just, I just made a mistake. Oops. Colored outside of the lines. No big deal. The problem with that is if sin isn't significant, then neither is grace and neither is forgiveness. Like if sin is not a big deal, then what Jesus did on the cross, it must not have been a big deal. And there's more that Jesus did on the cross than just save us from our sins. Yes, I understand that. But it's one of the things that he did. And if sin isn't that significant, then what Jesus did for us on the cross, it, it's not that significant. So let's see what sin actually is. Here's the first thing is all sin is idolatry. All sin is idolatry. When we go through the book of Exodus and we start reading through the Ten Commandments, like there's a few of the Ten Commandments that I can be really proud of myself that I have never broken. When it says, don't murder anyone, I'm like, yeah. Never done that. Thought about it. Never done that, though. Like, I actually haven't, I don't think, anyway. Who knows? Like, sports get really competitive, let's just say that. Like, but like, there's another one that says, never make for yourself an idol. Like, I can sit there, I can read that and be like, sweet, I've never gone to Connemara Marble and be like, hey, can I get some marble so I can make a household idol for my house? Like, I've never worried about that. And I can pretend, I can skate right past it, like, oh, man, I am so good. But then when we start reading the the rest of scripture, we start to understand something completely different, that our idols may look a little different. It's still idolatry. Our idols may, may be money or a job. We are willing to sacrifice our families, our, our relationships on the idol of our job or our money. Maybe it's love or intimacy or sex. I am willing to do whatever it takes so that I can feel some love, so that I can be, have some intimacy in my life. Maybe it's social media. I got to spend hours making sure my picture looks just good. Not that filter, not that filter. Oh, this is the one. So that everybody thinks my life is a lot better than it actually is. Maybe it's your kids or your spouse. An idol is anything that we can't live without. And our idols may look a little different, but if it, if it walks like an idol and it quacks like an idol, it's an idol. And that's what we see here. And the Bible uses three basic metaphors to describe idols. People trust their idols, they obey their idols, and they love their idols. So let me ask you a question. What are you trusting? What are you loving? What are you obeying? It's going to show us a lot of of what our idols are. And here's the big thing about sin is sin is rebellion against God. That's what sin is. Sin is saying, God, you don't know what's best for me. I know what's best for me. That's what sin is. It's saying, God, I know you said this, but I think you are wrong. And I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Sin is breaking the covenant. God has perfectly kept his his end of the the agreement. He's he's held up to his end. But when we sin, we aren't holding up to our end. And so that's what sin is. It's idolatry. It's rebellion against God. And when we begin to speak of, of sin in those terms starts to make us a little uncomfortable right it starts to make us think wow sin might actually be serious good because when we minimize our sin we are minimizing something so significant that jesus had to die for it and so when jesus says to pray like this he says forgive us our sins not just oops no our rebellion against god our idolatry forgive us that as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And here's the cool thing. It's like we don't always find this in Scripture, but Jesus actually does his own commentary. We flip down two verses later. Jesus explains what he means in verse 12. So look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus explains this. He says, as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And then he goes on to say in verse 14, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others your heavenly father will not forgive your sins if you refuse to forgive other people your heavenly father will not forgive your sins just of a show of hands does that make anyone a little bit uncomfortable yeah i think i think we can all be honest here it makes me really uncomfortable and i think that's the point that jesus is getting at like jesus wants to jar our sensibilities here jesus wants us to be like wait what what, what was that, Jesus? Like, for, thank you for forgiving me. Like, that's great. But then he says, if you don't forgive other people, the Heavenly Father is not going to forgive you. And I want to make sure we understand something before we go any farther. Jesus isn't saying, earn your salvation. That's not what he's talking about here. Here's kind of the big idea that I want us to see is, is we are not forgiven by our forgiveness. But our forgiveness does show that we have been forgiven. How many times can you put forgiven in two sentences, right? But Jesus is saying, like, the, what we read, first thing is, like, if we are not forgiven, or if, if we don't forgive, we will not be forgiven. But we can kind of look that down and see what Jesus is saying is, like, you know what? If you don't forgive other people, it's proof that you haven't been forgiven. Because the big idea of this passage is when we have been forgiven, when we have experienced the forgiveness of the Father, that is going to flow out of us to other people. When we have been forgiven, we are going to forgive other people. And both the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, that have the Lord's Prayer for us, both of them have a parable included in their, in their, in their uh, Gospel story. And each of them share a parable that talks about this idea of forgiving because we have been forgiven. And both of the big ideas is that those who, who are loved much, forgive much. And those who are loved little, forgive little. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip to to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to walk through this parable together really quickly. And we're going to read through it. I'm going to make some highlights and a few notes as we walk through this parable together. So Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. Give us just a second to get there. So the story starts this way. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who, forgi- who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. So stop there for just a second. In the religious law, the religious leaders would made the claim that you had to forgive somebody three times. Three times. And so what Peter is doing is like, Jesus, I have been with you. I have walked with you. I'm going to double that plus one. That's how spiritual I am. And is and like, is that enough, Jesus? And Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. For you math wizards in the room, that's 490 times. And the idea, idea here is after 490, if you're keeping count, you start over again. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And because of that, because of this conversation, he launches into this story. Starting in verse 23, he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who has decided to bring his accounts up to date with his servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so the master ordered that he was sold along with his wife and his children and everything he owed to pay the debt. If you have your own Bible and you want to underline this phrase, he couldn't pay, I think that's a powerful part of the story because that's the story of our lives, isn't it? We all have a debt that we cannot pay. We are all very indebted and we cannot pay. And here's what happens. He's getting ready to throw him into prison. And verse 26 says this, it says, but the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me. I will pay it all. Think about this for a second. The dude owes millions of dollars. No matter how gracious the master is, no matter how patient the master is, I'm pretty sure he knows he's never gonna be able to pay this back. I think that's the beauty of the story. Like, he understands. Like, we can say, you know, I will pay it all. We can try to pay our debt down, we can try to pay off our debt. We will never be able to pay off our debt of what we owe. Like, and I think that's the beauty of this story is is that the master understands that. The master knows that. God knows that about us, that we will never be able to pay off the debt that we owe. We are all in desperate need of someone who doesn't owe to pay. And this guy is pleading with him. He's like, I will pay it back. And I don't think he believes him. But he he goes on to say this. He says, then his master was filled with pity for him. And he released released him and forgave his debt. I want us to look at that phrase, was filled with pity. Pity. This isn't just like, "Oh, you're such a pitiful servant." Like this, this we could see this word. It was filled with pity. He was filled with compassion. He was filled with grace. He was filled with mercy. This is what he was filled with. And guess what, church? We have a God who was filled with pity for us. We have a God who was filled with compassion and mercy and grace for us. And that's the story here. We have a God who describes his own character as being slow to anger, full of mercy, and abounding in steadfast love. That's how God describes himself in the book of Exodus. Continue on in our story. So this guy's debt is forgiven, and we would think they all lived happily ever after, right? Like, that's kind of the natural conclusion of the story. But in verse 28, when the man left the king... He went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me. I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait and had the man arrested and put into prison. Look at verse 31. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that, could, that had happened. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you, are, you confess that Jesus is Lord, if you, if you go to church, if you're a part of this body of believers, if we lack forgiveness, people are going to notice and people are going to see something isn't right about that. Because like, if we have been forgiven, we ought to forgive other people. That's what's happening in the story. Like, they know something's not right here. This man just had a huge debt canceled, and he won't cancel this small debt for this guy. Like, they notice there's an inconsistency in this guy's life. The same thing is going to be true of our lives. We can tell people we are a Christ follower. We can act that way. But if we lack forgiveness, people are going to understand something is wrong. Our story isn't matching up. Verse 32. The king called the man he had forgiven and said, "You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you?" Then the king, the angry king, sent the man into prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. It's referred to as evil. When we don't forgive other people what we have been forgiven, the reference here is it's an evil servant. Jesus finishes the story this way. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your hearts. Now I gotta be real honest. There's a phrase that Jesus puts in this ending that I wish he would have left out. It's the phrase in your heart. Like I wish Jesus wouldn't have said that. Like if Jesus just says, hey, forgive people with your actions. Okay, Jesus, we're good. Like I can pretend, I can fake that I forgive people pretty well. But Jesus says, I don't care how you're acting. I don't care as much about your outward actions. I want you to forgive people, what's that phrase? From your heart. From the emotional seat in your heart. I want you to truly and really forgive people from your heart. And if you've ever had to forgive someone for something, you know that it is a daily thing. It is a daily decision or sometimes a minutely decision to forgive. And that's what Jesus is referring to here. I want you to ref- ref- Forgive people from your heart. Don't just act like everything's okay. Don't just pretend that everything's good. Don't just put on a show, no, I care about the heart. That's what Jesus wants from us. If we flip to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we we find another parable that's like this one. And the story starts by a story that we talked about when we started Advent. It's when Jesus is into the house of Simon the Pharisee. So Jesus goes into this house, the religious leader, and, and he's there. And Simon pays no honor to Jesus. He doesn't welcome him. He doesn't wash his feet or give him water to wash his own feet. He doesn't anoint his head with oil. That would have been a very inexpensive, hospitable gesture. Jesus does, or Simon does none of that to Jesus. And then we find out that in the story, things start to get a little bit awkward. Because here comes this woman. And she is known as like a notorious sinner translation, she is a prostitute, and she would have been a pretty well-known prostitute in that day. And she's sitting on Jesus's feet. She's touching his feet. She has washed Jesus's feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. And in verse 39, like, they're, they're, Simon is thinking, or the Pharisee is thinking, if Jesus knew what kind of woman she was, he would never let her touch him. And I love how this story starts in verse 40, and Jesus answered his faults. Simon he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. And then Jesus told them this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 to the other. So what we're talking about is a, a year and a half wages and a month and a half wages here. So he's, he's loaned a, a year and a half wages to one and a month and a half wages to another. Catch this phrase again, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debt. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look, this woman, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you did not offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. So Jesus is, is condemning the religious leader, and he's, he's, con- or, and he's, uh, he's building up this woman, this, this sinful woman. He's commending her. And then verse forty one or 47, we get the, the end of the story. I tell you. Her sins, and they are many. Jesus doesn't water that down one bit. Jesus doesn't say, Well, she's not that bad. No, Jesus is very, her sins, they are many. This is a hinge part of the story. Her sins, they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows little love. And so when Jesus says to forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who forgive against, or who sinned against us, This is where we're forgiving people because we have been loved much. And in case you missed it in these stories, I want to make sure this is completely clear. We are the ones forgiven and loved much. If you're reading those stories and you're thinking about someone else who needs to forgive, you're missing the point. Like we are the ones who have been forgiven much. We are the ones who have been loved much. And as I studied forgiveness and as I've taught on forgiveness before, I've said this before and I was just reminded of it this week. I will never have to forgive anyone for more than what Jesus has forgiven me for. Like when I see what other people have done against me, I will never have to forgive anyone for more than what what I've done. Our offense to God will never be greater or is greater than any offense that someone else does to us. If you are not the worst sinner that you know, you do not know yourself very well. And so I will never have to forgive anyone for more than what Jesus has forgiven me for. And here's the, here's the idea. Forgiven people forgive people. If we have been forgiven, we forgive other people. When we realize how much we have been forgiven, we forgive other people. We are grace-receiving people, so we are grace-giving people. Saved people are safe people. So Jesus says, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And there's really a few things that are playing out here in this passage. The first thing playing out is, is God's forgiveness, the way that he is going to forgive. And that's immediately linked to our forgiveness like Because we've been forgiven, we are, we're going to forgive other people. But another thing that's playing out here in this passage, I think, is, is this idea of confession. And this idea, this is a prayer of humility. That's what this is. This is praying saying, I am a sinful person. I have to have my sins forgiven as well. So this is a prayer of humility. Before we can be forgiven, we've got to admit that we need to be. Before we can receive the grace of the Father, we have to admit, we have to realize our sinfulness, knowing that we need to be forgiven. The old church father St. Augustine, here's what he says. He says, "My sin was all the more my sin was all the more incurable because I did not think myself a sinner. My sin was all the more incurable because I did not think myself a sinner. Until I realize, until we realize, our need for forgiveness. We are never going to accept the forgiveness of the Father. We are never going to be able to forgive other people. And so as we talk about this prayer of confession, this is what we need. In 1 John chapter 1, here's what John writes. He says, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James, who is really doing a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, James says this. He says, confess your sins to each other so that you can be healed and pray for one another. This is what we're seeing here. So we need confession. There is a barrier. Our sin builds a wall between us and God. And confession is the door that we walk through to get right with God. If what God desires is intimacy, which it is, then confession, honesty, is a builder of intimacy. Remember the first week we talked about how God does not want to be impressed. What he desires is intimacy with us. And one of the ways we do this is, is by confession. The Bible talks about you know, acknowledging our sins before God, acknowledging our sins before the people that we have sinned against, getting around some people that are close, trusted friends who can hold us accountable for that, so that who are going to pray for us so that we can be healed. And there are a lot of reasons that we do not want to confess our sin, right? Like, it is humiliating to confess our sins. It is humbling. Like, it's one thing to have our sin called out and, and somebody see our sin and they call us out. That is humiliating, but it's not humbling ourselves. To, one of the ways that we humble ourselves is to voluntarily confess sin. And confession, it requires humility, What I want us to do is I want to finish up by looking at a a psalm, Psalm 32. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip to Psalm 32. It's one of my favorite psalms. And to kind of set the story for us, what is happening when David is getting ready to write this psalm? David has had an affair with Bathsheba. And David has had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, executed, had him killed. And then he has taken Bathsheba as his own wife. And like it's just a weird story. Weird things are going on. And and David is is hiding the sin. He's covering up, not telling anything about it, not confessing his sin. And then this guy, Nathan, who is a prophet of God, Nathan shows up to to David and he he starts telling this, this parable. He says, suppose there's this man who has all these sheep and he has a friend come over. And instead of offering his sheep to to throw a party for his friend, he goes to his neighbor who only has one sheep that he literally sleeps in bed with. He loves the sheep, and he murders that sheep, and he, he feeds that to his guest. And David, like, he's a shepherd. This hits a nerve with David. He is indignant. He's like, that man should die. Then I picture, like, Nathan kind of shaking a little bit, looking David in the eye and says, you are the man, bro. You are that guy. And in the moment, David realizes his sin. He realizes the gravity of what he has done. And he realizes the the way he has lived lived with this. And he talks about this in Psalm 32. He lives with unconfessed sin. And here's what it looked like for him in verse uh, chapter 3. Verse chapter 3. Verse 3 of chapter 32. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. If you've lived with unconfessed sin for any period of time, like you know this, it is heavy on us. Like there are certain people that we just avoid because we know their very presence convicts us. So just ask you, are there any people that you're avoiding just because being around them makes you feel guilty of your sin? That's what David is dealing with. So it's time to confess it. And here's what happens. Finally, he's lived with that. The the hand of discipline is heavy on him. He feels like he is just groaning all day long. And here's the hinge word, finally. So David has lived with unconfessed sin long enough. Finally, I confessed all of my sin to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you forgave me. All of my guilt is gone. David finally gets to this moment. I can't hide this anymore. I've got to confess. And he confesses his sin. And something amazing happens. It's, we see that, and you forgave my sin. All of my guilt is gone. There's a part of this passage that seems almost insignificant. It seems like it really shouldn't be there, right? Like, And that's the phrase, all of my guilt is gone. I mean, read it without it. Finally, I confessed all of my sins to you. I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. Sounds pretty good, right? I mean, that's good news. Like my, Your sin has been forgiven. And maybe you've, you've thought that way. Maybe you've even you've, you've thought to yourself or even you've treated other people like, okay, I'll forgive your sin, but you better, you better not forget about it. I'll forgive your sin, but you better feel bad about it every single day for the rest of your miserable life until you die a slow and painful death. Like sometimes that's the way we view sin or forgiveness, and the problem is, that isn't forgiveness at all. And that isn't biblical because what we're seeing here is Jesus doesn't just forgive the sin. What else does he forgive? He says it right in the Bible, What does he say? Jesus doesn't just forgive sin. What else does he do? All my what? all my guilt is gone. Doesn't just forgive our sin. God doesn't just forgive sin, he forgives the guilt of our sin. Multiple times in Psalm 40:51 before David has confessed sin, he talks about this idea, wash me clean of my guilt, don't keep looking at my sins, remove the stains of my guilt. Friends, when when David confesses, God forgives. But he also removes the guilt of our sin. I find it interesting. There's two words that David uses here to kind of describe what is happening here. First is that it's the word forgive. And forgive means to lift a heavy burden and carry it away. Now notice that last part, carry it away. Like God isn't just lifting this burden and keeping it over our heads for the rest of our lives. No, he's, he's carrying it away. Scripture says that he has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. He has buried it in the deepest sea. That's what we're seeing here. The second word is the word hide or cover. And that is to completely remove from sight. So David is making this fascinating wordplay here. What David is saying is like, when I uncovered my sin, God covered up my sin that I did not cover up, that I uncovered. So I'm gonna say this again. When I confess my sin, when I uncovered my sin, you covered it up, the sin that I did not cover up. And so what we're seeing here, let me say it another way, when we uncover our sin, God will cover it up with his grace. I mean, think about things that are, that are completely covered up. If you are playing hide-and-go-seek with a kid, and they're like sticking a leg or an arm out, and you can see them clearly, like they're not real good at hide-and-seek, right? Right? Like, you no, know, when we play hide-and-seek, we want to be completely covered up. People don't, don't leave half-dead bodies hanging out when they're in burial, right? No, it's, it's fully and it's completely covered up. And that's the idea here. And that's what we're, we're seeing here. And hear me on this. God loves you. Your sin did not catch him off guard. There is nothing in your life that God, Jesus was like, wow, didn't see that coming. He loves you on your best day, and he loves you on your worst day. He loves your good side, and he loves your bad side. He loves you when you're standing on the water in faith and when you're sinking in the water in fear. He loves you, but he also hates sin. He hates what sin does to us. He hates our sin. He knows it ruins the relationships with with us and with other people, and he hates that, but he loves us. And many of you maybe here have been living with this sin for so long, you've, you've confessed it, and you just feel like it's holding it over your head, and it's time to leave it here. It's one of the things Jesus died for. He's not just forgiving the sin. He forgives the guilt of our sin. And when David realizes that moment, he continues on in verse 6. He says, Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. Like he is saying, friends, while there is still time, confess your sin. Don't live with the guilt of that anymore. Don't let it zap you of energy. It's time to leave it here. While there is time, David is begging, break the cycle. Quit living with this unconfessed sin. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, forgive us our sin. We confess that. And also it moves us to to forgiving other people their sin. And we talked about this in community group last week. We're going through through Romans chapter 8. And Romans 8 starts out by saying, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I think sometimes we ourselves feel like we're still in condemnation. But I think sometimes we also trap other people in condemnation. We treat people this way. We're like, this is who you are. This is what you have done, and we leave people in that condemnation, and that's not what we're seeing here. We're forgiving people. And here's what I want as we see this through, through the, the lens of the entire prayer, is that forgiveness is the way that the kingdom works. When we pray, may your kingdom come soon, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you know what one of the things we're praying for? Forgiveness. We're praying, like, like this, is, this is what it looks like to be part of Jesus' kingdom, to be people who forgive much. Jesus' kingdom is one of reconciliation, one of love, one of, of making things right. And so this is the way that his kingdom works. So here's how we're to pray. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food that we need and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Let's pray.